Good morning, Storyline, and happy Mother's Day. It's good to be apart together. And to my mom, I want to say, Mama, you're worth at least twice that much to me. Now, unfortunately, few of us can be with our moms today, and so I wanted to give the moms a very special, extra little present. And, and I know from watching my wife be a mom that there's nothing that moms love more than the way their children love and care for each other. So I thought this very short little video would be a really nice Mother's Day gift. I love it. So helpful. So kind. Thank you for the water. You know, one anthropologist claims the most important discovery in human history is ignorance. When human beings became aware that we don't know all that we need to and that what we don't know, like where did that water come from, can hurt us. It was ironically only after we discovered our own ignorance that we began to flourish as a species. The flip side of that discovery, of course, is some bad news. You see, to find out that you're ignorant is another way of saying that you were arrogant. And if ignorance is bad because you don't know what you don't know, then arrogance can be deadly because it assumes that you do know what you don't know. Last week, Paul introduced a new series for this month, Unlikely Heroes. And this tension between ignorance and arrogance is a common theme in heroic stories. And this morning, we're going to look at another unlikely hero and his inner battle of discovering his ignorance, admitting his arrogance, and in doing so, finding his path forward into flourishing. He would have been known in his day, in his native tongue of Aramaic, by the name Kepha. Uh, his given name in Hebrew was Simon. But history knows him by the name that Jesus gave him, Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' first followers. He was a fisherman, and then he was a fisher of men. He was the first to identify Jesus as the Savior, and so he became the rock upon which Jesus built his church. Later, he denied knowing Jesus three times. Then Jesus forgave him for that. And then after that, he's reprimanded publicly by the Apostle Paul in one of the later books of the Bible. I mean, Peter's story is all over the place. It is not this straight, dark line from zero to hero. His is a very human, a very unlikely story. And one of the major themes that comes up over and over again is Jesus helping him to see that arrogance, with all of its promises of power and poise, calm and control actually leaves us just the opposite. Arrogance has been called the seedbed of anxiety. And just like the last thing an addict needs is the only thing he wants, anxiety craves what created it in the first place. Certainty, answers, and the promise of self-sufficiency, security, and control that we often so naively believe comes with it. Now, I'm not suggesting that all anxiety is caused by arrogance, uh, this addiction to answers. I'm not a psychologist or a therapist or a doctor, but what I'd like for us to consider is that on a spiritual level, much of the anxiety that we struggle with, surprisingly, does not come from what we don't know, 
but rather from what we think we do know. Specifically, that having answers in life, having the answers of life, can somehow alleviate anxiety. I've been watching a little bit of Netflix during this time of quarantine, and, and one of the shows that I've stumbled onto and really enjoyed is called Waco. Uh, it tells the story of the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas, back in the 90s. It was led by a man named David Koresh. Uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well. Uh, and this portrayal makes everyone look bad, beginning with the arrogant ATF and FBI, but very much including David Koresh and the members of his cult. And, and as I was watching it, I kept asking myself the question, like, how in the world do these cult leaders gain such a following? You know, maybe looking for some tips. And then it hit me. They're like drug dealers, but instead of pushing drugs, they're pushing answers and getting their followers hooked on the arrogance and the false promise of security control, power, and the prestige of being the ones who know, the people who get it, who are prepared, who understand all of life, how it works, and how to avoid everything hard and bad and painful and unpleasant. C.S. Lewis used to write about this quite a bit. He had a very interesting way of describing this. He, he called it the attraction of the inner ring. And in an essay by that same name, he sums up what all girls learn in middle school and even what most boys figure out in high school. And that is that this lure of the inner ring, to be in the know, to know who is cool and what is cool and what isn't, and to make sure you're on the right side of that line, that that can protect you right up until the point that it devours you. It promises to alleviate the anxiety of not knowing, of being left out or left behind, but it comes at the great cost of making a monster out of you. As Lewis put it, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet very bad do very bad things. Tragically, it isn't just teenagers who wield this kind of cultic, cliquish arrogance. Religion and politics may be the two places where the walls of these rings are the highest and the thickest. Religion should be this place where we come together in compassion and comfort one another in difficult times. Politics should be the place where we come into the public square to, to build a consensus around complex challenges of, of life together. But way too often, politics and religion take the low and easy and arrogant road of trafficking in easy answers that, according to them, only the evil and the stupid could ever disagree with. As a young man, Peter had already been excluded by both the inner ring of politics and religion. And so all he had left, the only part of life where he had any hope of being in the in crowd, in the inner ring, was in his profession. And Peter was a fisherman. He actually met Jesus while fishing. In fact, Jesus' first words to Peter were, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And for about three years, Peter does just that. He joins Jesus on his mission to tear down the walls of the inner ring. 
and bring people together, not around some secret knowledge or political plan or specific religion, but the wide open love and the never ending grace of God. Yet, during those three years, every time Peter's name is mentioned in the Bible, we see again this inner struggle within him to admit his arrogance or to cling, I'm sorry, to admit his ignorance or to cling to arrogance. Sometimes at the, at the very same time. In fact, one of my favorite Peter stories is the time he identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And Jesus says to him, you're right. And now I'm going to change your name from Simon to Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Can you imagine that? It's like winner, winner, chicken dinner is what they used to say on this network I used to watch on TV once in a while. But I mean, things could not have looked better for Peter. And finally, he made it, the inner ring. It's kind of a famous story, but what's much less well-known is what happens next. See, Jesus is telling his followers what's going to happen next, what's going to happen when he goes into Jerusalem, and it's not pretty. And Peter's arrogance, his need for certainty and control overflow in this anxious outburst, and he tells Jesus, no, that can't happen to you, Jesus. We will not allow it. And so one minute after Jesus declares Peter the rock, the very next thing that Jesus says to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> it's quite a wild ride. What a whirlwind. So is he in the inner ring or is he out? Does he have reason to be arrogant or is he ignorant? And the truth is, Peter, the rock, is caught yet again in a very hard place. Man, I just love that song so much, isn't it? It's so true how much we learn and grow between a rock and a hard place. Is it possible that that's where we're at right now in life? And that maybe we have something very valuable to learn in this time and place. Did you know that long before COVID-19, public health officials had been talking about two pandemics that were breaking out in all of Western civilization. The latest one of loneliness, we've actually talked about quite a few times in the last several months, but the other plague of the Western world that's been happening and spreading for the last 75 years has been, in fact, anxiety. W.H. Auden, the famous poet, wrote a poem not long after World War II entitled The Age of Anxiety. And all the experts agree that it has been a growing problem in our society since then, and it's actually exploded in recent years. Now, the definition of anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about something that with an uncertain outcome. Maybe you can relate. But it's really interesting to note this about anxiety. It was only with the advent of the industrialized world and its automated, refrigerated, urbanized, mechanized, electrified conveniences and all the power and control and security 
that all of those things seemingly gave us over life, that anxiety really started to spread in our civilization. And it's only been just recently, in the last 20 years or so, in our new click, compare, and consume reality of the information age, that anxiety has become a pandemic. It is this growing illusion of control that makes arrogance so enticing. I know all I need to know. If that's who you are, if that's what you think about yourself, it means that I can see the future, I can prepare for it, I can stand up against whatever may come. It means I'm on the right side, I'm on the good side, I'm, on the, I'm in the inner ring. And it's, oh, so intoxicating. Now, Peter's story is one where Jesus exposes this, not only as an illusion, but also a disease, an addiction, really, that sucks the life out of life. See, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, he appears to his disciples on many different occasions. One of those was on an early morning after Peter and a few others had been out all night fishing. And the Bible says that they caught nothing. I mean, nada, nothing in the boat at all. So they're disappointed and they're going into shore. And as the dawn breaks, they see a figure out on the shoreline and it's Jesus. And he says to them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Now keep in mind, Peter couldn't tell who the man was on the shore at this point. He's too far off. And so this request was as stupid as it was insulting. I mean, Peter is a professional fisherman. He just spent all these hours doing the very best he could. He was in the inner ring. He knew what he was doing. And now he's coming back with nets full of nothing. And now this stranger was telling him to fish on the other side of the boat. And it's almost like you can see this battle raise up again inside of Peter. He's faced with this same old struggle. Do I know everything I need to know? Will I be arrogant about this? Or is it possible, is it possible that I'm ignorant? That there's something that I don't know that I don't know? And so I'm not sure if it was all that he had seen living with Jesus for the last three years or exactly what it was, but Peter does something really quite amazing. He listens. He listens. And he casts his net on the other side. The Bible goes on to say that the net was so full of fish that it almost sunk the boat when they tried to haul it in. You see, what we, we see going on here is Jesus challenging Peter's arrogance, his pride. And he isn't doing that because it bothers Jesus. He's doing that because it's robbing Peter of a flourishing life. Jesus enters Peter's inner ring, the place where Peter is in control, knows what he's doing, how to get what he's looking for, and suggests that maybe there's another way one that won't keep you up all night and left with nets full of nothing but anxiety. It's really fascinating to see. Meanwhile, Jesus is pushing Peter away from his arrogance. It's important to note that he's not pushing him into ignorance. Those aren't the only two choices in life. Something else, something beautiful and brilliant 
is going on here in this story. You know, for almost a century now, experts have known that human growth happens best when we are operating just beyond what we can already do. When we're in, this, when in, when we're in an area just beyond what we already know. And Peter is an unlikely hero of the faith, not because of what he believed or how much he believed, but because of who he believed. And it wasn't, first and foremost, himself. In this scene, Peter is discovering this link between arrogance and anxiety. Why do you think he was fishing all night? He was behind at work. He was almost certainly over his head in debt. So he's doing what he knows how to do. The only thing that he knows to do. He's busting his butt. He's hustling. He's putting in extra hours. He's working all night long. He more than likely is trying to cheat on his taxes by fishing at night so any catch that he would make could be collected off the books. In other words, Peter's anxious. And this all-night fishing trip is like taking a hit of, an, of arrogance. And Jesus is trying to break this cycle of addiction by rooting it out at the very core, at the very bottom of what it is. Look, he could have filled Peter's net Peter's way. Why did he ask him to cast his nets on the other side? Have you ever noticed in the Storyline logo that the eye is upside down? The reason we did that was to suggest that maybe the way we merge our story with God's is by flipping the point of life on its head and making our story about something bigger than just I. Look, you can't even spell the word anxiety without an I right in the middle. And the same is true for its root cause, arrogance or pride. There's the I again, right in the middle. What Jesus is showing us here in this unlikely hero story is that we have to drop the I from the middle of our story. The arrogance of pride, of our lives being about what I can do, what I know, what I can contain, control, achieve, hide from, or hoard. He's saying the I story leads to nothing but nets filled with anxiety. Jesus wants our life to flourish. And that begins with discovering our ignorance, acknowledging our arrogance, and listening. Listening him to, to him speak into our life and invite us to cast our nets, what we're looking for, what we're fishing for, what we want out of life, onto his side of the boat. That's what the life of faith looks like. You know, in athletics, it's called being in the zone where every kick, every shot, every hit is just perfect. It happens in other areas of life, too. For example, I've seen my wife in the zone in some shoe stores and in the donut shop. It's amazing. I mean, the zone, it's like this state of optimal performance. And it has nothing to do with what we know. Our arrogant pride, 
But it isn't the opposite either. It isn't like ignorance. It isn't blind faith. Do you know how the zone was actually discovered? Believe it or not, a Russian psychologist by the name of Lev Vygotsky first discovered the zone by studying moms. Moms. Specifically, in how they teach their children the most important and the most complex and complicated skill any being in the known universe can do. Speak. Vygotsky found that moms are always speaking to their children just beyond their ability to understand. Now, it goes without saying that they're always speaking way beyond what their husbands can understand, but that's another talk for another day. This is Mike's wife, Dylan, with their son, Soren. One of the bummers of this quarantine is that I haven't been able to see Soren, so every once in a while I make them send me a picture or some video because Soren's changing so fast. He's learning how to run, how to ride a tricycle, and he's learning how to talk. Now, Dylan is super smart, but I can promise you this. She has no idea how she's teaching Soren to talk. In other words, she isn't arrogant about it, but she isn't ignorant either. She knows she has a very important, actually a critical role in teaching him how to speak. And like all moms, what she's doing is she's using words and ideas that are about only 85% of which are in Soren's ability to comprehend. But by keeping that 15% just beyond where he's at right now, Soren is um, being thrust into what researchers call the zone of proximal development. Sports psychologists just call it now the zone. And it's the path to human flourishing. And here again in this story, in this encounter with Peter, we see the beauty and the brilliance and the genius of Jesus. He was always doing this with people. Notice when he approaches Peter, that he approaches Peter on his terms, in Peter's place, where Peter feels accomplished and comfortable. In other words, 85% of this scene makes sense to Peter. He's on a boat. He's doing what he knows how to do, what he wants to do, fish. But then Jesus does it. He invites him into this zone of proximal development by pushing Peter past what he already knows, where Peter has to, he has to let go of his arrogance and pride and the anxiety that comes with it. And yet, Jesus isn't pushing him into ignorance. Something else is going on here. Cast your nets on my side. That is the invitation. Cast your nets, your life, your wants, what it is that makes your heart beat the fastest, what you're after. But on my side, you see, it's somewhere in between what we know and what we don't know, between arrogance and ignorance. Living by faith in the grace of God, you could say, is the zone of optimal human development because it's blending what we know but don't know our desires, our uninformed yearnings. It's flipping the point of our story from I to God. 
and finding this zone between arrogance and ignorance that might best be described as intuition. What we know is true and good, but we don't know how we know it. Mothers just flow with this. Dads, not so much. But the instincts, the intuition that kicks in with new mothers, well, we've all seen it. And it's truly, it's one of the most beautiful things we've ever seen. It's one of the greatest wonders of the world. Soren has no idea how he's learning to talk. Dylan, Dylan has no idea how she's teaching him. I mean, can you imagine the anxiety both of them would feel if this was all up to them and what they know. But that isn't what's happening here. Both Soren and Dylan are moving forward intuitively in this dance, in this relationship. And they're doing so by faith, trusting that there are gracious forces at work that are both beyond them and yet within them. And an amazing thing happens in this zone of faith. Anxiety melts away. Cast your nets on my side. You see, Jesus isn't issuing an order here. It's an opportunity. It's not a challenge. It's a chance to really flourish. Later in his life, Peter uses a very interesting phrase to encourage followers of Jesus. He writes this, cast all your anxieties on God. You have to believe he was remembering this moment in his life. The zone of faith and flourishing is found when we cast our nets on God's side. You know, we often talk about how there's nothing you can do to get God on your side because he's already on your side. But that gracious reality can be squandered if we aren't on his, if we don't accept his invitation to live by faith in his grace. Peter didn't have to listen. He could have come ashore with empty nets full of anxiety. But it's a type of surrender that Jesus is calling us to. It's not giving up on life. It's exactly the opposite. And I wonder, have you done that? Here we are living between this rock and this hard place. Are you ready to do that? If you are, at some point this summer, we're hoping to have a baptism service. And it's a great opportunity to cast your net on God's side. If you aren't ready for that, that's okay. And I would just ask you, why not? What's keeping you from living in that zone? Either way, I would, I would love to hear from you this week if you want to talk more about what side of the boat you're fishing from. Let's close with this one last story. The practice of quarantine began during the 14th century in an effort to protect Italian coastal cities from ep epidemics. Ships arriving to Italy from infected ports were required to sit at anchor for 40 days, or what the Italians called 
Quarantina before landing. Now, we blew past 40 days a while back, and as long and as difficult as this has been, I've been thinking about my life now and my life BC, before coronavirus. And although they are very different, I don't want to just slip back into normal. Maybe you don't either. And so as the country begins to open up, maybe we can take this time to ponder new beginnings. Maybe let's, let's not get in a hurry. Maybe let's listen for God speaking and inviting us to cast our nets on his side. You know, before Peter was Peter, which means the rock, his name was Simon, which means, are you ready for this? To listen. Let's not be in a hurry. May we listen to Jesus and his gracious invitation to lay aside our pride, drop the eye, and flip the point of our storyline, and cast our nets filled with anxiety onto God's side. That is the zone of faith and the path of all unlikely heroes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for the ways that you love us and for your gracious invitation um, to us to change the course and direction of our story. God, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice, that we would slow down, not be in a hurry, that we would consider what it might look like to live in the zone of faith, intuitively, in this relationship with you. God, I pray that as we log off this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us this morning, folks. We're going to have a Zoom call right after this. If you scroll down a little bit, you can see the link, and I'll see you there.